Greetings, rabble-rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. So if you've been listening to the show, you'll know I don't think much of the electoral left at the moment. The NDP have failed to be any kind of opposition to liberals, conservatives, and and more importantly, capitalism and austerity measures. This is the case federally as well as in most of the provinces. And I can tell you firsthand, and so will my next guest, that political parties are actually spaces full of gatekeepers who've been at this game a while and who have many resources at their disposal. These folks tightly control everything within the parties. In the case of the NDP... Rather than empower a movement, they'd rather tap into wealthier donors and try to siphon off the liberal and conservative vote. But their watered-down policies aren't even the biggest issue. I mean, they're a problem, but the internal structure and the culture within the NDP, the Greens, and apparently even the Communist Party of Canada, are not there for change or even positive political experiences. Hell, many of them aren't even safe spaces to be in at all. We've documented many of these issues in our Inside the NDP episodes that you can find on the Blueprints of Disruption playlist, but I think it bears repeating that these institutions are far from democratic. Political parties are designed to provide absolute power to unelected people who have no vested interest in the political revolution we know we need. As a result, the NDP is becoming irrelevant which is particularly concerning as we see the far-right rise in the House. And yet we still see so many cheerleaders out there willing to put incredible time and effort into promoting a party that's so mediocre it would celebrate a means-tested $650 dental care payout as life-changing. But for every one of those cheerleaders, there's also someone frustrated by the centrists calling the shots and blowing our chance at political transformation here in Canada. They, too, have put immense time, effort, and risk into trying to get parties like the NDP and the Greens to be more bold, especially in the face of the climate emergency, rampant homelessness, the destruction of our healthcare and education systems. I mean, it goes on. And... I've been a part of these efforts within the NDP for a few years now, Um, from organizing around conventions, writing and promoting resolutions, running for positions within the party, and other campaigns that we've had, just generally trying to pull the party left, trying to bring democracy back to the party. But other than put me in touch with more and more determined progressives, an absolute gem of a network of people that I have, These efforts bore very little fruit otherwise. In fact, I've witnessed countless, countless members walk away from partisan politics altogether. Good people. Folks with incredible ideas on how to make movements, uh, how to transform our economy, and, and who were willing to do much of that work for free. We've publicly together seen good people, MPs, MPPs, chewed up and spat out by these so-called progressive parties. Their stories line up with that of members of being silenced and left disillusioned with the whole process. We have to ask ourselves, what's the point? 
Because like the NDP in the House, socialists have made so few gains within the party system. Can we really justify putting all our hopes and precious free time into a political machine that that's now even hostile to those that they see as the quote-unquote far left? I mean, in B.C., the United Steelworkers, who are intertwined with the party establishment, the NDP party establishment, in so many ways, went so far as to call environmentalists within the party extremists. Now, the NDP is not the only party to discourage transformative politics, despite telling us otherwise. My next guest, Dimitri Lascaris, had a heck of a time trying to do the same over in the Green Party, you know, where many NDPers fled in hopes of more progressive pastures, right? I need to note now here that the Green Party at the moment cannot be considered as being on the left. I mean, they proudly boasted as much in their last dismal campaign, and you'll see more evidence of that in this episode. Surprisingly, even to him, Dimitri was almost successful, though, in his bid to be party leader running on an eco-socialist platform. I know a lot of us on the left watch that campaign with high interest. Now, Dimitri will give us an inside look into just how hard they worked to stop him. Both of us talk about our experiences going up against the political consultant class and entrenched party leadership to change the party from within. And I had followed Dimitri's story, but when I finally got the chance to actually have a discussion with him, the parallels between our stories and our experiences within partisan politics just kept coming. I I imagine there are many of you out there that will relate to this interview. And as we ask each other the questions that we often find ourselves struggling with internally and online and within, you know, our smaller political circles... Questions about the purpose of the NDP, you know, or in Dimitri's case, the Greens, and about what our individual roles could be, should be, in bringing about that political change, especially considering the barriers folks are constantly facing inside partisan politics. Let's listen in. So welcome, Dimitri. You join us from afar today. I do appreciate you taking the time. I know a lot of my listeners will know who you are, but for those that don't, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure, Justin. Thank you for having me on your program. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Dimitri Lascaris. I'm a, a lawyer, journalist, and activist. Uh, I, I've run politically for the Green Party at the federal level. I ran in the 2015 election. I sat on the shadow cabinet of the Green Party uh, of Canada as a justice critic. I was also on the executive in the shadow cabinet of the Green Party of Quebec, which is an avowed eco-socialist party. And in 2020, I ran to be the leader of the Green Party of Canada and finished uh, a close second uh, out of eight candidates and have since, um, I, shall we say, uh, finding myself meandering into the political wilderness. <laughs> and so uh, that's it in a nutshell. I think a lot of people can relate with that last statement. You know, not everybody's run for leader of a party, but um, a lot of people have been sorely disappointed by partisan politics and find themselves in that political wilderness a little bit, some of us a little bit aimless. Um, So I think I want to ask you more about that, that run for leadership. What makes, you know, I'm, Some of the listeners might realize I myself didn't run for leader, but I ran for party president federally and provincially for the Ontario NDP. My motivations were 
I didn't actually think I was going to win, but I felt like this the NDP and the Ontario NDP needed a wake-up call and there needed to be organizing done around being more critical of the party and pushing it left and, you know, restoring democracy within the party, you know, if there ever was any, to be honest. But, you know, I want to hear, what were your motivations? That was, I mean, you put a lot of effort into that race. You almost won. Was your motivation to, in fact, win or no. was it broader uh, I mean, than that? Well, let me say that if I had won, uh, I would have given it my all. Uh, I would have uh, steadfastly refused to compromise from my principles, even if that meant that my tenure as leader would have been cut short. But I had virtually zero expectation of winning. And frankly, I thought more likely than not they were going to stop me from running at all, uh, which, initially they, which initially they did. Uh, you know, in May of, of the leadership contest year when uh, they vetted me, uh, and the, 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 the contest was decided about five or six months later, I was rejected as a candidate. Uh, they gave me a set of reasons uh, for my rejection, which I've said little about. But today, I want to say, Jessa, if you want to get into it, I'm happy to be more expansive about the reasons in this conversation. Uh, but in any event, uh, much to my surprise, uh, after they, they rejected my application, and we had a uh, conversation, I had a conversation, an appeal, basically a hearing by Zoom with the leadership contest uh, authority. Uh, I was absolutely convinced they weren't going to let me in. And I told my campaign team that it was over. Uh, and much to my astonishment, they did let me in. And I was even more surprised when, uh, from that point on, our campaign picked up a huge head of steam and we came very close to winning. And I remember... Uh, you know, when we got to the uh, the, the the floor of the uh, the uh, the setting, the conference center where they were going to announce the winner, and everybody knew at that point in time that it had basically come down to a contest between myself and Annamie Paul. Um, you know, there were eight ballots. Annamie was declared the winner on the eighth ballot. On the fifth ballot and the fourth ballot, uh, they declared me to be in the lead. I looked to my campaign manager who was standing beside me, and I, I said to him, "I I think." I think I'm going to throw up. And he, said, he said, why? I said, because I might actually oh, win. No. I said, you know, I, I'm just not psychologically prepared for this. It's a huge burden. I, I didn't ever expect to be here. Uh, and I have to say that, uh, again, I, if I had won, I would have given it my all. Uh, but I have to say that I was astonished uh, to be ahead on the fifth ballot uh, and to have come so close to winning. So the uh, that's a long-winded answer to your question. The short answer is I wanted to do what you wanted to do. I, I wanted to change the political discourse. I wanted to force uh, the other candidates, all of whom I thought would be more palatable to the political establishment in this country, to address the critical issues of our time, and particularly the elephant in the room, which is the capitalist system. Uh, so I was not expecting to win, and I, I, you know, when it was all over, I was, frankly, very, very encouraged that we had come that close to winning. But... I was also astonished by it. Well, I think like your campaign was interesting because for the first time we were hearing the term eco-socialist or socialist is, you know, the more key term there, to be honest, in a leadership race for a political party in a very long time, I'm sure. So, you know, that had the effect of 
drawing over a lot of progressives. You know, I know a lot of NDPers were upset with you um, because I, I know quite a few people who left the party and went to the Greens because of the hope you generated there around, um, you know, possibly having an avenue for socialism as an answer within a party because all those efforts have been thwarted within the NDP for so long. And then I think it was like, oh, well, maybe the Greens are a little more democratic. Maybe it's more accessible. Look how well Dimitri's doing. And um, what do you say to those folks who, you know, are still in the Green Party and they see that resignation today or, or maybe it came in yesterday? It doesn't have the party president saying, you know, there's there's really no hope for this party. Um, I, what, I, what I would say to them, look, I, I mean, I, I can't, uh, in good conscience, uh, you know, direct political energy into a black hole. And I would say to them that I now have profound reservations about uh, the electoral system in our country. I want to be very clear about this. I've had many conversations privately about this in the last several months with colleagues on the left. I don't think that the the, the electoral landscape globally is a wasteland. I think there are parts of the world in which, you know, socialist politics can be quite successful. And that has been proven in spades. I mean, you look what's happened in South and Central America, which I think is one of the most promising political landscapes for the left. Uh, You look at what Evo Morales accomplished. You look at what Hugo Chavez accomplished before he passed away. Uh, Rafael Correa, Correa, unfortunately, he was replaced by a neoliberal masquerading as a progressive but while he was in power, he accomplished great things. Lula was imprisoned unjustly in Brazil, but he's on the verge of a, an amazing political comeback. Colombia has its first left-wing president. Uh, you've seen a narco, a far-right narco dictator in Honduras be replaced um, by um, the uh, socialist or at least socially democratic uh, spouse of the deposed uh, leader in Honduras. Uh, and so there are parts of the world, and I've just you know mentioned South and Central America, where the landscape is promising, and there has been a great deal accomplished, although there's so much work to be done. In the West, however, uh, and particularly Canada, uh, I have deep, deep pessimism about our ability to achieve socialist transformation through electoral politics. And I think that basically, you know, especially focusing on our country, Canada, it's because we have been hijacked by the U.S. hegemon, socially, politically, militarily, economically. Canada has become little more than appendage of the United States government and is entirely beholden uh, to the dictates of the U.S. oligarchy. The United States, in my opinion, will never allow, as long as it has the, it has the power to prevent it, uh, a socialist government from coming to power uh, in this vast land to the north of its uh, its border, uh, because that would that would pose too great a threat to uh, the U.S. Empire, frankly. Um, so, in Canada, can we achieve socialist transformation through electoral politics? I'm sad to say that I'm deeply skeptical about that. I'd love to be proven wrong, and I and I to one to some degree or another, I think that's become largely true of the West. I think Western Europe has been completely. But the political system in Western Europe has been completely co-opted by uh, the U.S. hegemon ever since the demise of the Soviet Union. There's no countervailing political force from the left 
fighting against U.S. domination of Western Europe. And Western Europe has also become, perhaps to a somewhat lesser degree than Canada, but it's also become more or less a vassal of the United States. So are there parts of the world in which socialist transformation can be achieved through electoral politics? Yeah, I think that certainly is the case. Is Canada one of those places? Uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very skeptical about that. So I love how you give folks a little bit of hope there, that socialism is not lost upon us. Uh, but let's let's bring back the reality of Canadian politics like you did at the end there, because I do want to touch on some of the ins and outs of that run, you, you know, your attempt to influence the Green Party through that that leadership race. Because I think it parallels what we're seeing in the NDP and a lot of folks, you know, I may I don't agree with the Greens as any kind of solution, but I I don't represent the entire left. It does seem like the electoral left as a whole operates very similarly, uh, especially when it comes to gatekeeping and um, focusing on the partisanship part of politics rather than the goal, you know, um, the statement today from the party president that resigned uh, was more was essentially that that the Green Party was no longer focusing on saving the planet, but of simply settling old scores, I believe is the quote, and, you know, playing that partisan politics game. So, Dimitri, like w when I ran um, for party president. A lot of barriers were put in my place. I, too, did not think that they would approve me. Um, it wasn't clear what the criteria was or who was doing the approving. I got no confirmation email saying I was even on the ballot, like no information at all. I was just deprived of times and dates things would happen, of deadlines. You're not given any kind of voter list or access, especially in virtual days, right? You're not given any kind of access to the membership. But this isn't the same for... The establishment, right? Um, for folks who are not aware with how the NDP works, and you can enlighten us, enlighten us on the Greens, but um, unofficially, the NDP will select a slate. They won't announce a slate. It isn't branded as a slate, but they will choose people to run in all of these positions. And most of the time, they uh, essentially run unopposed. And, um, you know, that's never good for politics, right? There's no discourse around uh, someone just being acclaimed as a party president. But they do everything they possibly can to make it as difficult as possible for any kind of grassroots. And we're seeing that happen in leadership races across the country. So in BC, there is an attempt to challenge the establishment there. But, you know, the critique is that is just wasted resources. Saskatchewan, the NDP members there put up a good fight and tried to influence the leadership race there. And they were met with nothing but... I, the stories coming out there are awful. We'll talk about that on another episode. But in Ontario, I have no faith that the leadership race here will be any different. It's the same person who rejected all kinds of socialist candidates gets to decide whether or not the leader is fit to run. And, um, you know, it's just the same process. So, so Dimitri, what barriers were put in place that made it difficult for you um, in that campaign, not necessarily like why you lost. There's all kinds of reasons we can talk about that, but like, did they make it easy for you to run? Let's talk about the attempt to disqualify you a bit. I mean, was it warranted? Well, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Well, uh, I certainly didn't think so. And at the end of the day that, you know, three member committee 
uh, was persuaded to let me in. And I'll get back to the reasons why I think they did that. But I was basically given uh, four or five reasons for why uh, I was not allowed in. Uh, the first reason, uh, and in no particular order, uh, was my uh, advocacy for Palestinian human rights and my criticisms of uh, prominent figures in Canadian politics who are, uh, let's shall we say, vigorous defenders of Israel, which is an apartheid state, as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and Beth Selim and Yeshdin and many, many other reputable human rights experts and groups have recognized. Uh, you know, I criticized two liberal uh, members of parliament who uh, were running the Israel uh, Parliamentary Friendship Group and were basically in charge of it for their defense of Israel. I uh, also criticized Erwin Kotler, who has been, you know, uh, the former Canadian justice minister, liberal, who has been a fierce uh, defender of Israel. Uh, another reason I was given was that uh, in the run-up to the 2017 election in BC, um, I had criticized publicly uh, shortly before the vote uh, Andrew Weaver, who at the time was the leader of the BC Greens. And I did that because Mr. Weaver had alienated organized labor in BC uh, because he was uh, having a veritable love fest with Christy Clark who might regard as one of the most right-wing politicians uh, in Canadian politics of the last 10 to 15 years. Um, he was making it quite clear that uh, he preferred to have to work with a Christy Clark government rather than a John Horgan government. And despite my, you know, my profound reservations about John Horgan, my criticisms of John Horgan, I would have viewed him as being more compatible with the Green Party agenda than Christy Clark. Um, I was uh, I was told um, that uh, I had been unduly critical of the leader of the former leader of the Green Party of Canada, Elizabeth May. Oh, no, you can't do that, no, Dimitri, no. not in the Green Party. Oh, no, because after all, it is Elizabeth May's party, as we've all come to understand. Um, and those those essentially were the were the reasons I was given, you know, and I, you know, with respect to my the the the, the, the criticisms when I you know had that um that I would call it an interrogation. I was basically on the appeal. I was interrogated quite aggressively, uh, and I'm a lawyer. I, you know, I'm not I'm not thin-skinned about this sort of thing. I was quite taken aback by how aggressive I was. Uh, aggressively, I was questioned by uh, the interim leader at the time, Joanne Roberts, in that appeal. Um, and what I explained to her was very simply, you know, the only reasons why I ever criticized these liberal MPs, including Mr. Kotler is because they are advocates effectively in Canada for an apartheid state. And I went through the evidence <laughs> that it's apartheid. You had to explain this? I, to the... I had to explain it, uh, sadly. Uh, you know, and I pointed out to, to her that uh, you know, Mr. at the point in time at which I was interrogated, uh, Andrew Weaver had resigned as leader of the BC Greens, and he was openly ridiculing uh, his former colleagues in the BC Greens, including Sonia Furstenau, who's the current leader of the BC Greens, and Adam Olson, openly ridiculing them, and was effectively having a public love fest with Justin Trudeau, and was, uh, you know, trying to persuade Canadian voters that the, the Liberal government of all governments had the most responsible plan uh, to address the climate crisis. It was just astonishing, you know. 
And, and so, well, that plan's going well. Yeah, you know, again, we're going. I mean, no, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that the, no liberal government in our lifetime is ever going to achieve its climate targets. I mean, this is a fraud. Uh, you know, so I just went through these things, and at the end of the day, as I said, it, it's not that I thought my answers were insufficient. It's that the the, the tone of the questioning was so aggressive uh, that I I came away from that, even though I felt that I answered every question, uh, you know, comprehensively and uh, persuasively, uh, I just felt the tone, you know, suggested that uh, I was not going to be, uh, my appeal would not be allowed. But to my great surprise, it was. And I, and I, you know, I have to commend Joanne Roberts for that. Although I wasn't happy with the way I was treated in that, uh, that discussion. Uh, nevertheless, at the end of the day, they did make the right decision. Now, I, you know, other candidates have not been so fortunate as myself. I think, I think part of the reason why I managed to squeak through is because I, I, at the time that I went through this process, I had been a lawyer for 30 years, you know, and that enabled me to, uh, to I think, exercise my appeal rights in a way that other candidates who haven't been litigators for decades uh, may not necessarily be able to do. So I think that that played a role. Um, may I suggest, though, Dimitri, though, I'm just going to interject there that you also had a following, right? Like you had a... Um no, I don't mean to make it sound like a fan club, but you would have the capability of really exposing a disqualification and generating a lot of uh, noise around that. Because I do find in these partisan atmospheres, it is the squeaky wheel that gets the oil. And the although, you know, uh, publicly criticizing and talking about party matters is so taboo in in partisan circles it really is the only thing that often protects people and get things moving right so you would have had a lot of people making a lot of noise should you had been disqualified especially on the grounds of being a critic i mean didn't you start this conversation by saying you played a role in a shadow cabinet like is that not the role of any opposition is yes. to be critical yes and, uh, like the, uh, I, sorry jess i don't mean to interrupt but uh, yeah, I, I think that that's certainly there's some truth to what you're saying for sure. The fact that I had been a uh, a justice critic in the the Green Party of Canada shadow cabinet, the fact that I had a bit of a following, although my following at that point in time, you know, the people in Canada who were aware of me politically was the the number of them was much smaller than it was by the end of the leadership contest. Uh, you know, it was really what happened after my expulsion from the leadership contest that uh, gave me. Uh, a bit of a profile, Canadian, uh, you know, nationally in Canadian politics. Uh, so I think I think more. Uh, I think w what was more of concern to them was that I am a litigator. Uh, I have demonstrated a, I have demonstrated a capacity to defend my rights legally and uh, and through the judicial system. I think that that's something that weighed on their minds quite a bit. I think they were concerned that they could find themselves in a very nasty piece of. Although I didn't like explicitly threaten this at any point. I, and, I, and, and there's some speculation here on my part, but I think that that weighed heavily on their minds. I did an episode not that long back about um, candidates being disqualified, you know, running for MPs, MPPs. And usually the answer, the reasons, if they're given any, was uh, sometimes it was language, like it was tone policing. You know, they were too aggressive in critiquing somebody online. But generally it was just about being too critical. And that, I mean... <laughs> It keeps making me ask the question, then, like, what are you folks doing? So I ask you, Dimitri, like, what do you think their actual reasons are for making it so difficult for P 
people on the far right or far left, <laughs> um, which I do consider myself, I consider anybody calling themselves an eco-socialist pretty far left, is an attempt to keep that kind of politics out or, or do they actually think you being too critical of a couple liberal MPs and a and the BC Greens is something to make an issue of? Did you feel like they were just trying to stop you essentially from winning? I think there are two things going on. But before I do that, I just want to say, I mean, yeah, sure. By the standards of Canadian politics, you and I are far left, Jessa. There's no doubt about it. But the, the phrase far left uh, to, and has the regrettable sort of implication of extremism. And so I, I kind of, when I'm, you know, when people use that term to describe me in relation to mainstream politics, I accept it. It's a fair characterization. But I don't think that you and I are extremists. I think the centrists are the extremists. I think the, the, <laughs> the, enough, the, the yeah. defenders of the status quo that is leading humanity down the path of extinction and injustice and grotesque inequality and veritable serfdom for the vast majority of the population. These people are the epitome of extremism. You and I are moderates by the standards. These are the people getting promoted, though, yeah, right? Yeah, like these totally. are the people at the forefront of these parties. Totally. And, and so I think, you know, there are two things going on uh, uh, when people like you and I are filtered out of the political process. Uh, you know, that the filtering is a bit of a euphemism for what actually goes on. Uh, we're more like, yeah, that was a nice Yeah, thing. we're persecuted out of the political process. I think there's, it, it's certainly my experience within the Green Party is there's one camp within the party establishment who privately, you know, are not ideologically hostile to where people like you and I are coming from. But what they're profoundly concerned about is that if the party is led by somebody like us or people like us are allowed to assume positions of responsibility the party is going to get savaged by the establishment. They're going to get savaged by the media. The party is going to get savaged by, you know, the oligarchy. And they're afraid. They're frankly spineless, right? They don't want to take on power. They think that the party doesn't have the capacity to do that. And so they adopt a, an approach of incrementalism, not because they are ideologically inclined towards incrementalism, but because they just don't have the courage to take on the establishment. And then there's another group which actually are ideologically aligned with the establishment. And so these two groups working together, you know, do everything they can to throw up obstacles uh, in the way of persons like yourself and myself and other, you know, socialist candidates who have tried to enter uh, Canadian politics at a leadership level. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a, the two of them working together is an extraordinarily formidable obstacle. Absolutely formidable. And if by some miracle, you happen to overcome those two obstacles internally with your own, within your own party, then you will confront the much greater obstacle of the media sabotaging you at every turn, doing everything it can to, uh, you know, the mainstream, the CBC, the CTV, Global News, the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, all of these organizations, some of whom, these media organizations, some of whom actually have the audacity to characterize themselves as progressive uh, when they're anything but. They'll do everything they can to undermine you. And not not just the media, right? Like we heard Anna Mae Paul claim, you know, I don't know, but claiming her own party. Like even if, Dimitri, you were to have won, that, that same apparatus that you uh, were able to thwart in their efforts, yeah? They're still there. Yeah. Right? They a single person within within any one of these parties I don't think is all that influential. I'll tell you why mostly because, you know, when you talk to people inside of Jagmeet Singh's caucus, 
it becomes clear he doesn't actually run the show at all. Now, he's a particularly um, sidelined leader. He, he He's happy just kind of checking into meetings and checking out with, you know, what he's got to say with but he's not shaping anything. He has no vision that's driving this. He's not the person in the ear of everyone. That's the staff. That's, you know, Anne McGrath and um, and, and Jennifer Howard and the establishment behind that, you know. And so do you think if you had won that we would have been able to see that eco-socialist platform? Oh, I think I think that, uh, well, in, in the case of the Green Party, we have... Um, you know, a peculiar situation in which one person, a former leader, has not left the scene and exercised extraordinary control. So I think that in, in that particular instance, in the case of the Green Party, I think there would have been, uh, you know, vicious warfare conducted by Elizabeth May, both directly and through her proxies to undermine my leadership. You know, she was running around. I mean, we talked about what happened in the vetting process, but we didn't talk about what happened after that. Once I got through the vetting process, Elizabeth May was working behind the scenes to get me kicked out of the party, not just to get me kicked out of the leadership contest. She was actually trying to get me kicked out of the party, and she managed to convene a meeting days before the actual vote at the end of the leadership contest uh, in which... Um, there was a debate about whether to expel me from the party, and they didn't even tell me the meeting was happening, Jessup. Oh my God! This, yep, I can see this. Yeah, this you know, like I, yep, I, I, it, I, it was leaked to me. Does not surprise me. You know, somebody leaked it to me. Uh, otherwise, they never they never notified me, and they allowed into the meeting two people who are not members of federal council, two people who have never had any official status with the Green Party of Canada, but who are uh, you know passionate promote proponents of Israel. And those two people proceeded to make a presentation uh, to the federal council for the purpose of persuading them, which was entirely defamatory. Uh, I, I subsequently saw the material that they provided to federal council. Uh, one of them actually filed like a 50-page complaint against me with Elections Canada. Uh, and I've never, I've never heard a word from Elections Canada about this complaint, but a copy of the complaint was, was leaked to me. So these people were allowed into the meeting to attempt to sabotage my reputation. And I wasn't even told that the meeting was happening. Um, so this is the kind of thing that, so I, I mean, you know, what would have happened if I had won? I, I can only imagine that it would, just got, it would have gotten worse from there. And, you know, I keep citing the example of Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, is, has a record of socialist activism that makes, puts mine to shame. This is, a, this is an individual who has been passionately committed to the cause of socialism his entire life he actually managed to grow the Labour Party of the United Kingdom to the, to, to the point where it was the largest political party in Europe. He came within a hair's breadth of winning uh, his first general election, his capacity as leader in the United Kingdom. Um, and, and he only lost, by the way, I think, because in subsequent investigations, I think, have borne this out, because he was sabotaged by people within his own party. And where is Jeremy Corbyn today? Jeremy Corbyn today has been as marginalized as anybody could possibly have been. If they can do that to Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> you think they can't do that to you and me? Of course they can. Of course they can. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why. I'm so, if, you know, if somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, who I think was our best shot, our best shot at a genuine socialist government in a major Western state, uh, could find himself so marginalized today uh, after all that he contributed uh, to politics and to life within the United Kingdom, 
I, I, it's very hard for me to be optimistic about somebody, uh, you know, like you or me who uh, haven't achieved his level of success, uh, his level of, uh, uh, shall we say, the, the, the following of that magnitude. I mean, the largest political party in Europe. You know, that it, it, I, I just, when I saw Jeremy Corbyn go down, that it's was not that promising was, for folks like you and I, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, it, was, it was just heartbreaking to see that. And I, that, that really, that convinced me, I think, at the end of it. It was a big, it weighed heavily on my mind when I was thinking about whether to run again. And because I thought, you know, what happens if I do win? What, what, what then? If they can do that to him, certainly they can do it to me. That brings me to like my next question that I'd like us to explore. And it's one that I find us having um, on the left more and more. And I think originally when the first person said this to me, I thought they were ridiculous. So I'm sorry to whoever that was. But I think it was probably, I'm paraphrasing, you know, that the NDP was is there to keep us busy, to keep us I'm using air quotes for those kids, these these radicals busy spinning our wheels, you know, in an institution where we'll never actually be effective. And and I don't you can't say that it was purposely created in this way, but I have a hard time saying that now it's not become that, because even if you just look at your leadership race alone, or, or the campaigns that are going on right now to usurp establishment leaders on the left. Think of the amount of fr- labor, mental health, time, all of these efforts and these talents going into these campaigns that really bear no fruit in the end. Not much. I mean, a discussion is had, you know, maybe people are looking at these parties a little more critically, Um you know, Jeremy Corbyn, we can't say he didn't have an impact. But I mean, overall, is is that essentially what the electoral left has become in Canada? Like, what do you think about that? I'll, I'm going to spit a quote you gave to me when we talked earlier. So because um, I want you to revisit this, Dimitri. You said the Green Party now and you gave the example in Germany was to de-radicalize the environmentalist movement. Absolutely. I stand by that 100 percent. I mean, look, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, you, you, you just posed this question a, a moment ago, you know, or at least positive an answer to the question, which is that maybe they weren't actually designed these parties to uh, to accomplish that goal. And that I think that's a fair comment. I, I, I can't say that when these parties were actually established, I think that the people who founded them. So, for example, the Green Party and, you know, came out of Germany. Uh, and the co-founder of the German Green Party was Petra Kelly. Uh, Petra Kelly is somebody for whom I have, you know, considerable uh, respect. Petra Kelly was a, a committed, passionate anti-militarist, uh, opposed to nuclear weapons, a passionate advocate for Germany's withdrawal from NATO, uh, you know, a staunch critic of the capitalist system. What have the German Greens become today? The German Greens today are one of the most belligerent, militarist, pro-NATO political parties in Europe. What are they doing uh, in order to advance what I regard as a proxy war uh, on Russia, which uh, is, 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 is being, uh, to, the, to, the, to the great detriment, uh, tragically being waged on Ukrainian soil with Ukrainian lives? What are they doing in order to deal with the energy crisis that this has generated? They are actually uh, reviving coal-fired power plants in Germany. 
they are actually extending the life of nuclear power plants. This is a party that was born out of the anti-nuclear movement. They are actually, um, you know, uh, berating publicly their nominally social democratic coalition partner, uh, the SPD in Germany and Olaf Scholz for not sending even more heavy, heavy weaponry to Ukraine. So something has gone terribly awry. And what is now happening, you know, in parties like the Green Party of Germany, the Green Party of Canada, uh, is that, you know, they're sucking up radical energy within the environmental movement. They're, they're leading us to believe that we actually should be uh, devoting our strength, our passions, our intelligence, our knowledge and our skill to building up these parties. But at the end of the day, what do they do? They snuff out uh, radical advocacy. They silence it. They suppress it. They shame it. Uh, and so whether this was by design or not is kind of beside the point. That is, in fact, the effect that they're having. And it's certainly happening in other areas of the socialist movement. We see this, for example, with the Democratic Party of the United States, the so-called squad, in my opinion. I was a big you know, fan of the squad at the beginning. Uh, now I have absolutely no time for the squad at all. They've become cheerleaders for Joe Biden. They've accomplished absolutely nothing as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely nothing. Uh, and I see this in the NDP. I actually left the Green Party um, for a short period of time after I was expelled from the shadow cabinet by Elizabeth May for criticizing Andrew Weaver. Uh, back in 2017, I joined the NDP because, uh, you know, Nikki Ashton, whom I regard as a friend, was running to be the leader of the NDP. Um, and I thought, you know, even though I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Nikki is radical, R Nikki is the real deal, in my opinion. And Nikki is somebody who deserves our support. You know, what happened? She was, you know, a serious contender. And then this character from Ontario, from the Ontario NDP swoops in, Jack Jagmeet Singh takes over and then proceeded to basically become a guardian of the status quo at the head of the NDP. Um, you know, so even, you know, with respect to the NDP, you see this happening. Uh, you see that you saw this happening with Syriza in Greece, where I currently am now. Syriza was holding itself out as being a radically left wing party. Uh, it sucked up a tremendous amount of socialist energy in Greece at a time when people were furious with the austerity regime that had been imposed on the country. They even called a referendum about you know, the the then most recent austerity package, which Greece's creditors were demanding that it implement, that the government implement, the Greek people voted, two thirds of them, nearly two thirds of them voted against the austerity package. And what did the so-called radically left government proceed to do within a matter of days? It implemented the most radical austerity package that the Greek people had had to endure up until that point in time. So we've seen this pattern over and over again. These parties are actually, uh, they're actually consuming and sucking up and, and dissipating uh, radical energy uh, and the environmental movement on the left of the political spectrum. And I think it's time for us to come to terms with that. Yeah, like I, no doubt, I know, you know, people had good intentions at the onset of creating these parties, but I have trouble believing that now, you know, it's not by design because what I find, you know, maybe not just from a climate justice perspective, but from a socialist perspective, with the NDP and social justice movements, like they use that language. They use a very specific language. They give themselves a very specific image and use dog whistles for us to call us over, um, to make us think that they are the solution electorally. A lot of people invest all of their hopes, you know, their lives depend on better policy choices. 
I'm thinking specifically folks on on social assistance or people depending on our healthcare system. You know, they come to these parties because they're like, this is my only chance at getting X legislation passed or whatnot. But, you know, then it is like you, you called it a black hole when we're a lot of um, NDP insiders are talking about it. It's like an abusive relationship where we can't knowingly draw people into these spaces anymore because we know that their efforts won't be appreciated, that their ideas won't go as far as they could in other spheres, that they might even get hurt. And But they continue to try to draw these people in that they know want change, right? They know folks like you want bold action on climate. They know NDP members and the people that they're drawing in want free education. We don't want means testing, uh, uh, free transit. I mean, like, I could go on to all the things that they know we want, but if you try to demand it, they push you out. 100%. So, 100%. Yeah. And quite often, it's not even this clear, like, you're out of the party, right? So for me, it was just like, we're going to cease communications with you. We're going to try to marginalize you as much as possible, but still want to keep you and your friends in the party. And because I think we're just like donations uh, and free labor for them come election time. But they absolutely know that they're drawing in all these folks that could be doing better work elsewhere Um, and repeating this over and over and over again. And I feel like we just need to like you're trying to do now, but like warn people. I'm trying to wave this red flag because I feel a, a weight of the amount of people that maybe I can encouraged to stay and fight for so long but now like as we talk about it as we hash it out like fight what like even if we had got a really radical new leader um what would that have done what would that really have done if nikki had won i don't know because that uh, all those other mechanisms would still be there absolutely yeah And, and by the way like when it comes to people like you know jennifer howard and gerald butts and so forth the strategists who are actually calling the shots uh i think it is intentional I think these people are consciously, uh, you know, uh, manipulating a situation where the leadership is employing rhetoric that continues to seduce the left into supporting them. Uh, you know, they and they are extremely adept at using the language of lesser evilism. Uh, if not us, then it's the other. Oh, dear, you know, yes. they, they just pummel the crap out of us with that strategy. Uh, and they know all along that at the end of the day, their party will end up being an agent for preservation of the status quo, but that in order for them to uh, play their proper role in the political system and have any kind of a power and privilege at all, they have to continue to seduce the left to support them. So people like Jennifer Howard and Gerald Butts, absolutely. These people are doing it quite consciously. They are sucking up progressive energy for their own nefarious, uh, you know, uh, political ambitions. That's all they are. And what makes me most mad about those folks, specific, like Gerald Butts has nothing to say because he's winning all the time now, but Jen, the Jennifer Howards and such, they go and blame non-voters, right? As though like they played no part in the fact that all these folks have checked out of politics altogether or that their messaging was not effective, that they did not mobilize their troops effectively. They go and blame the already marginalized people, the people who can't even see any hope left in electoral politics because of them, right? And then that becomes the narrative that let's just blame 60% of the population as though that doesn't signal this huge underlying problem in itself. Like, 
Well, they, 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 they got to blame somebody for their failures, Jess. You know, <laughs> that, that, why not? True. Why not blame the people who are in no position to defend themselves? <laughs> They're like the prime, the prime targets for you know transferring responsibility for the miserable failures of the strategists of the NDP and the Green Party and uh, you know even the Liberals. Absolutely, they do that. And it's 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 shameful. It's absolutely shameful. We are responsible. I say we, I don't mean you and me, but I'm talking about the so-called political left in this country, what calls itself the political left. We are responsible for low voter turnouts more than anybody else. We, we have betrayed the people so often that they have checked out of the political system. And we are the last people who should be criticizing them. Ask the people of BC, you know, because I, I think of this as a someone who has volunteered many, many hours on ca- campaigns. Like, I've, I think I've only ever been paid for one campaign I've worked on, and I don't know how many man hours or people hours I've put into it. And you multiply this many, 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 many times over. And what have we really accomplished? We look at BC and we look at the infringement of Indigenous rights, the the logging of the old growth, uh, his handling of COVID, I'm, his in response to the wildfires and loss of life. I mean, this is what all those folks work years and years for. They finally get in power, you know, which seems to be the only goal now. Like, fuck everyone in my way, even fuck our messaging, whatever it takes to win. Even hardened progressives think that way, don't they, Dimitri? Like, well, that's the necessary evil we need to do to play the game to win. This Machiavellian approach that we have to play to the media. The media will always... I'm really getting upset, but the media will always shit on us, right? No matter, they always do. They'll never be our friends. So to use that, yeah, so to use that as an excuse for, you know, the the contingent that you talked about that exists within the NDP for sure of folks who do believe in socialism or do believe in climate justice and know how we have to get there, but just don't think it's palatable enough, right? Cowards. I call them cowards. They are. They are. Like, Dimitri, do you think it's worth trying to replace any of these institution like a lot of people talk about creating a new party but we saw a lot of comrades go over to the communist party see the same thing you're telling me the same thing happens in the green party like creating a new party requires resources but we can't abandon electoral politics can we like it's kind of this this is part of that wilderness we talked about at the beginning like what do we do well you know there's this um you know i had the privilege of of listening to a speech uh delivered by Chris Hedges in Toronto, the United Church on Bloor Street back, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And he told this story that really made a great impression upon me. And, um, you know, he was talking about Nixon and how Nixon had probably been the most progressive president of the last 50 years. Uh, not, Not because of his ideological inclinations, but because Nixon was forced by social movements, basically intimidated by social movements into uh, adopting, you know, meaningfully, uh, meaningful socioeconomic reforms that actually had quite profoundly positive impacts on on a broad swath of the American public. And he tells this story about how uh, Nixon and Kissinger were standing in the White House. And uh, this was during the massive protests against the Vietnam War. And there were quite literally hundreds of thousands of people you know, lined up uh, on the edge of the White House, clamoring to get over the barricades. And Nixon looks at Kissinger and says, Henry, they're coming to get us. 
know, and, and so Nixon was. Actually, <laughs> I wish I had been yeah, there. He was actually scared. You know, this is in the biography of Good. Kissinger. They frightened him. Uh, now, I'm not, you know, advocating for people to use, you know, violence or threats of violence. But if the public becomes sufficiently agitated uh, and restless, you can force uh, people who are strongly disinclined from an ideological perspective to pursue a, you know, profoundly progressive agenda to make major concessions. But that requires, you know, a level of mobilization that we have not seen in this country for a long time, if ever, Jessa. Like we are a long way. We need to be, you know, generating general strikes. We need to be bringing the economy to its knees. We need to be causing massive losses to the major corporations in this country. We need to be causing, you know, we need to be showing up at the homes of ministers of the government, standing on their front lawn, naming and shaming them, embarrassing them, calling them out, making them uncomfortable, constantly, relentlessly. That's the kind of activism that could cause these people to actually, you know, move in a left-wing direction against their own will because they're actually afraid. But we're nowhere, we're nowhere close, close to that now. I, I just want to interject because, you know, it sounds contradictory what you're saying, even though it's not. So for listeners who kind of cringe at the idea of showing up at outside where somebody works and lives and being confrontational, that threat that Dimitri said shouldn't be of violence because these folks, they fear losing their power just as much as they fear for their own safety. So it's that demonstration of our power, not of violence, but that of just to remind them that there are always more people than there are of folks in power. But that's not obvious when we're on our keyboards, when we are writing letters to the editor, when we're griping amongst ourselves, right? That's really only completely obvious when we take to the streets. And so it appears violent, but it is not. This is an exercise of democracy, just not at the ballot box. Yeah, I'm, I absolutely. I'm, you know, I, I totally agree with what you said, Jessa. And no one should interpret anything that I've said as being, you know, uh, uh, encouragement uh, towards acts of violence, like whether against or threats of violence, whether to persons or to property. What I'm talking about is disrupting the economy and making politicians feel uncomfortable all of the time by calling them out for their betrayals of the people and not letting them ever get away uh, as we constantly allow them to do, the media allows them to do with, the, the, with those betrayals. Um, so, you know, for example, another example I can give was Joe Manchin, who's, you know, an absolute disgrace of a politician, the Democratic senator who's done everything he can to sabotage what little progressivism there is in the Biden agenda you know, he owns a yacht and there were people following him around every time he showed up at his yacht, protesters, you know, pointing out that he's heavily invested in the coal mining industry. He was getting into his, I think he was driving a Ferrari or something in a parking garage and there were protesters showing up and calling him out for being a lackey of the fossil fuels industry. You know, so he never actually had a moment's peace. That doesn't mean that he was actually being physically threatened. That never happened to my knowledge. But he was being exposed for the charlatan that he is. Uh, and and, and, and he, he didn't have a moment of comfort. Uh, so uh, that's the kind of activism we need if we're going to change uh, politics by means other than direct engagement in electoral politics. Um, anything short of that, uh, I have to say, 
uh, in this country, in the West generally, um, I don't see a path towards radical change. I think in other parts of the world, you know, and by the way, just because the revolution isn't going to start here, doesn't mean it isn't going to come here one day. (laughs) So it will start somewhere. I have every confidence that there will be a socialist revolution. I think it's going to begin within my lifetime. If I live long enough to see it, it will happen. Uh, And it will eventually come to our shores. I'm very skeptical, though, that it's going to begin here. Well, hell, I needed to hear that today, Dimitri. You know, it's it's a rainy day outside, and the Canadian political landscape is looking particularly bleak this week. And thank you for that, because that's hard to hold on to, though, sometimes, you know, because people do want to start to affect change here and now. So, you know, when we talked earlier this week and essentially... You know, when you do have timing and go back and listen to all the episodes, right, Dimitri, you'll hear that like a lot of this show, uh, Blueprints of Disruption, is about amplifying those micro activists and these instances of community networks that are starting to evolve um, as another means of the left being prepared to fight back against the right. I feel like we're on the defense right now. In In this country, we are. We are in this country, yeah, but in other countries, they're on the offense. Uh, and I think, you know, it's important for socialists in Canada. If you want to look for inspiration, build links with socialist movements in countries where those movements are succeeding. They, they, I mentioned a number of examples. There are others. Uh, we need to find our allies where, where, where they exist, support them, learn from them, uh, and understand that this is an international struggle. This is not a national struggle. It's an international struggle. One becomes a lot more hopeful at the possibilities, right, when we can look beyond um, what we're seeing right now. But Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I hope that I've not left you or anybody who will listen to our discussion with the impression that I, uh, uh, I, 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 I don't have hope. I, I don't even believe in hope, frankly, Jessa. I mean, for me, it's not even a question of hope. I, tr- I'm, I regard myself as a realist. And I, when I say that, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that there will be a socialist revolution in my lifetime if I live to be the average lifespan of a Canadian male. I mean it. I truly believe that. I'm just not convinced it's going to start here. <laughs> That's all. Uh, but it's going to happen. It has to happen. People will wake up because reality is intruding into the official narratives. It's becoming too obvious, uh, even to persons who really don't have the time to investigate it because they're just struggling to get by. It's becoming too obvious to the mass of humanity, that we are on a disastrous course of action and that capitalism is at the core of, uh, of our, 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 our rather uh, dooms-like destiny if we continue down this path. And so people will rise up. Uh, I don't think anybody should have any doubts about that. I feel like we should end the conversation there because I, I, I would like people to go from there, you know, and, and especially thinking back to your suggestion of creating those links quite often the work here I focus on is is purely Canadian and uh even though I you know politically I am an internationalist I do believe the the revolution does have to be international in nature <clears throat> to truly succeed um but I often am missing that link so thank you for that reminder and I, I do think that is a point of a starting point for us to to get the tools that we'll need when we are there when we get there, right? Because we will get there. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time, Dimitri. Um, 
it's a pleasure talking to you. Let's let's we must do this again. I feel like I can draw so many parallels to your motivation and and mine and and many comrades that we have that are likely listening. So I think um, I think folks will relate a lot to what you had to say today. Thank you, Jess, and and you continue please to have these discussions with with our comrades on the left because they're absolutely indispensable. Voices like yours are so. Uh, are so desperately needed in our country and the world today. And uh, I, I, I express my appreciation to do to you for doing what you do and what you've done your, you know, your entire life as an activist and a politician. Oh, I hate that word politician, but I do appreciate the kind <laughs> <of word. laughs> I actually visually cringe, right? But um, I do, I, I, I very much appreciate that, Dimitri, um, and your time today. Thank you. Take care. So in the end, I'm not sure what engagement in partisan politics can or should look like for everyone. That's not for me to decide. But I do know they are tough and toxic spaces in which very little changes. And this is despite massive efforts from grassroots members, as we've heard. I know far too many people burned out, exhausted, and emotionally harmed by engaging in partisan politics. I am one of them. All of us activists unwilling to sit back and accept the status quo inside the parties. But I wondered just how many stories I haven't heard. How many people put their passions and talents to work for years, only to be silenced, tokenized, or booted from the party one way or another? These were change makers. How many great people have turned their backs on electoral politics altogether? I don't know. But the good news is that for the most part, These people have not given up on changing the world. They've put their efforts behind local organizing, global movements, and other avenues of disruption, spaces far more welcoming than the NDP and the Greens for socialists and, you know, other so-called radicals. We didn't spend too much time on what Dimitri calls micro-activism because that's what we tend to feature in most of our episodes of Blueprints of Disruption. We do this show to highlight the endless possibilities out there for you to make an impact. You don't have to donate before that deadline, you know. You don't have to give free labor to an organization that isn't advocating for what you and your community need. I don't want to diminish the work, though, that's still being done inside some of these parties by people that are determined to save it. I love you, folks. I really do. And I'm here from time to time to do what I can there in those efforts because I know that feeling thinking that they're the only hope for change, and if you don't keep doing what you're doing, the other side wins. But that word hope just isn't enough anymore. At least not hope in others. Hope in folks that aren't even actively engaged in the struggle we need. Because we're desperate for massive changes to our systems, and I just don't think that the party apparatus is up for the job. I do think you folks are, though. Keep well. Like in all things that we do, there's a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com backslash BP of disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of disruption. Blueprints of Disruption is a project of New Left Media, an independent employee-owned company.